Hi, and welcome to the Microbintry Podcast. I am Nabil, your host for today, and we've had a lot of people asking us to talk about COVID-19, so we put together this special episode to talk about it. Dr. Andrew Page is joining me today in his capacity as Head of Informatics at the Quadrum Institute of Bioscience, and we have a special guest, Dr. Justin O'Grady, who is a group leader at the Quadrum Institute and Associate Professor of Medical Microbiology at the University of East Anglia. Both have been leading the SARS-CoV-2 sequencing effort in our region, and so far the team has sequenced 1,500 SARS-CoV-2 genomes. So we'll be talking about how the UK effort is organized, what's been happening in the lab, and how that flows on to the bioinformatics. I should mention that we live in Norfolk in the UK, which is a pretty small geographic region, which is about 900,000 people. And so we have one genome for every 600 people, which is probably one of the densest sequencing in the world. So first off, Justin, who are you and what do you normally do? I think you've introduced me quite well, but yeah, I work, usually work on um, medical microbiology applications in particularly diagnostics. I work on rapid detection of pathogens in clinical settings and also in food. Uh, so <clears throat> more recently, I've, I've been applying uh, clinical metagenomics, so metagenomic sequencing to, to clinical samples to detect uh, pathogens. Uh, faster than we currently do by culture. Just in case anyone's been living under a rock, what is COVID-19 and what is SARS-CoV-2 or HCoV-19? Well, <laughs> it's a global pandemic. It's a virus which caused uh, this uh, pandemic that we're currently experiencing in every country in the world. It started off in, they believe, in uh, December uh, last year. Some say maybe as early as November. But um, uh, And then it uh, rapidly spread across the world, as we all know, and uh, caused major disruption to our lives. What is COG UK and how does that fit into COVID-19? Well, COG UK is a, a UK consortium of, of, of people who are trying to sequence the coronavirus genome. So it's the coronavirus sequencing and COVID-19 genome sequencing consortium from the UK. And uh, there are 16 sites across the country. And they're mainly uh, academic labs, uh, public health labs, and um, research institutes like the Quadrum Institute and the Sanger. And so um, it covers the whole of the UK, so Wales, Scotland, England, and Northern Ireland. And the idea is that we try and get as much coverage of all those regions, all the regions across the UK as possible. And we uh, try and build a tree, a family tree of the virus here in the UK to try to show how it was introduced and how it has spread across the UK. And we can also use it for more, more in-depth analysis uh, to look at, for example, outbreaks in care homes or workplaces, etc. as the outbreak moves on. Okay, so how did you both get involved in, in all of this? Well, in March, I was on jury service and uh, an email came in to Justin and I asking, did we want to be part of a, a consortium to do some sequencing of uh, coronavirus? And I thought, oh yeah, sure, why not? And it came from a, a guy who shares my office 20% um, of the time, but he, he runs uh, the bioinformatics down in public health Wales. So it was, you know, reusing existing connections and building consortium. And in literally no time, this entire consortium came together. And if you're not familiar with, with grants and that kind of thing, normally these things, you know, putting together a consortium would take months and months or even years. And this seemed to be, you know, a matter of a week or two. And to be honest, we started doing everything before even paperwork was done or signed because this is obviously such an important thing to get done. What, what about you, Justin? Yeah, well, I got the same email as you did, Andrew. And then 
talk to John, our, our boss here, and uh, then talk to Ian, the boss, and then we decided, you know, could the Institute deliver on such a program? And we decided we should do it, and it would be a good idea to get involved. But it, like you, I thought it would take time, and I thought this was an initial just tester from them to see would be interested. But what I didn't realize at the time was that a grant had already been written and submitted. And it was only a few days after we received the email that they had had been awarded the grants. And then, you know, within two weeks, we were we were sequencing genomes. Yeah, that's pretty fast. Yeah, particularly for things like ethics and uh, building all the connections and all of that. It's just insane, really, when you think about it. And I think it was only possible because like you had a lot of existing connections through the medical school into the local hospital. And for those of you who don't know, um, the Quadram Institute is based on a campus, which also has the regional hospital, NNUH. And it also has the medical school for the local university. So, you know, within one teeny tiny uh, little campus, well, it's a big campus, within one small little area, you have everyone you, you need to, to make a project like this happen. It was fortuitous in some ways that we had everything. Uh, um, we had the, the docs already joined for other projects. But yeah, I think um, what we had to do was go through the biorepository because that allowed us uh, to, uh, to put in place the ethics that we needed uh, to collect these samples and start working them on them almost immediately, long before the uh, official ethics for the study had come through uh, the COG UK consortium from Public Health England. So we were able to get up and running uh, very quickly through the virology department um, giving us the samples and uh, the biorepository uh, handling the samples and handling the metadata and anonymizing the samples for us so that we could we could proceed with work. So, so just to clarify, you both mentioned this biorepository and this interface with the hospital and, and our own research institute. What is the like how does the bio how is the biorepository actually structured and, and how does that help? Well the biorepository is an NNUH organization. So so it is able to collect uh, excess uh, samples from laboratories uh, and uh, allow uh, researchers to test those excess samples with an overall uh, kind of overarching ethics that they have. So they're allowed, they allow us to gain access to these samples and test them. And, and then if we want any information on the patients or the patient's metadata, we would then need to uh, get local ethical approval to get that information. All of the work that you're talking about is operating under lockdown conditions. How has that affected the ability to respond so quickly? Well, that's a good question. Um, so the good thing from the analysis point of view, and I'll let Andrew discuss this, but uh, you guys are able to work from home a little bit easier than we are. But from the lab perspective, we had to get people to volunteer uh, to come to work. And, uh, you know, basically we put out a call to ask people who would be willing to, um, to come and do some work on coronavirus sequencing. And we got a number of people responded to that, a number of people from my group, because they um, have a lot of expertise in this uh, clinical sequencing area anyway. And so, yeah, we, we had to put together a, a bunch of volunteers who would be able to handle each part of the process that was required. So the, the process is, would, would start it with sample collection from the uh, clinical virology lab. 
and then uh, it would move, then the samples would be brought back to the Quadrum Institute and where we would make uh, cDNA and do uh, PCR and then uh, we would move the samples to sequencing uh, and uh, we had other people to do that job. And then the data that would then be sent to the bioinformatics team and I'll, I'll let Andrew take over from there. There was a lot of people involved. There must have been, what, about 26, I think, at one count. So huge numbers everywhere. And then everyone needed to have backups just in case to get coronavirus, you know, because obviously that, that's a big risk as well. We did. We tried to we tried to separate teams at one point here. We 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 wanted to have independent teams uh, so that they wouldn't be working at the same time in the lab, um, so that they they wouldn't uh, be a chance. That they were working in shall we say pods, so that they wouldn't uh, give the coronavirus to each other. So if one pod went down, we'd be able to switch to another. Uh, but luckily, we didn't have to make use of that because nobody got coronavirus except me. God help you. <laughs> and was it bad, Justin? Um, it, I've had worse blues, um, but there were more lasting effects, I would say. So, uh, you know, I, wouldn't, I would even still sometimes notice a, a lack of energy or a, a breathlessness at the top of the stairs, whereas, um, you know, other flus would have, when they were finished, you know, you would have a couple of days you felt bad. But this seems to have dragged on a little bit with minor symptoms, many weeks later. So you're very dedicated to the cause. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's excellent. Let's switch over to talk about some of these different wet lab methods you've been using. Uh, so what? So, so if you're reading the literature, there are many different methods for sequencing um, SARS-CoV-2. So which did, did, did you pick and, and why? Well, uh, we chose the Arctic protocol, network Arctic protocol for a number of reasons. The people involved in the study in the UK are the people who developed the Network Arctic Protocol. So uh, Josh Quick, Nick Lohman and others. Um, so, and they were heavily involved in, in this uh, COG UK project. So it made sense that we would use that, that protocol, but also from, for many reasons, it's probably one of the best protocols there is um, globally and in terms of sensitivity and specificity it seems to be very good. So I guess that's why we chose it. And then um, it's a 98 primer pair tiling PCR approach. Uh, there are other uh, protocols out there which use larger amplicons. So this one uses uh, 400 base amplicons, uh, whereas other ones use 1 kb or 1.2 kb. Uh, but they're not quite as sensitive. So I think it's a good uh, combination between sensitivity and data yields that we get from either minion flow cells or Illumina sequencing. And there's no opportunity for direct sequencing? It has to be through some amplification? Well, the virus was discovered using metagenomics. So there was patients in China who had unknown uh, severe respiratory infection, and they knew uh, it was probably related to coronavirus, but their coronavirus so their SARS primers, et cetera, weren't working. So they used um, metagenomics to sequence some samples and they were able to detect and sequence the virus in that way. Uh, but uh, the problem with that approach is that it wouldn't be as sensitive as uh, a tiling PCR approach. So you would get uh, genomes, uh, full genomes from patients who had high viral loads, but you wouldn't from patients with lower viral loads. 
so the tiling PCR approach gives you more complete genomes from more patients. And so that must have introduced several issues into the lab. So what have you had to deal with uh, in the lab in, in terms of the sequencing? Yeah, so you've got to, you know, the protocol itself is, uh, it, it's somewhat laborious. It takes, it takes quite a bit of time, uh, maybe seven or eight hours to go from sample to sequencing. You know, there are several steps <clears throat> along the way. And you have to um, have fairly robust uh, sample handling procedures so that you don't mix patient samples up and you record them appropriately. But then uh, there are challenges all the way along the protocol with the, you know, you're generating a very high concentration coronavirus sequence and um, the PCR products, then you're washing them and you're getting them ready for library uh, for, to make a library for sequencing. And uh, there is a lot of coronavirus uh, nucleic acids uh, moving around the laboratory and that can cause issues and headaches with uh, with contamination. So how much virus are we talking about? Like what kind of sequencing coverage does this translate to or are there any measurements of how much virus there is? So we get, we get the sample from uh, the clinical virology lab. So Sometimes we get it just as in viral transport media and we have to do RNA extraction ourselves. But a lot of the time we get the excess diagnostic sample that was tested by the clinical virology laboratory. And they have tested it using a qPCR assay and that is quantitative. So it gives you a CT measurement. And that CT measurement is related to how much virus viral copies were in the sample. And we would often you know if it's in the 30s there are only hundreds to tens to hundreds of copies of the virus and if it's in the 20s there are thousands to hundreds of thousands of copies of the virus in the sample we would know the concentration of the virus that's in the in the particular sample that we were testing and the arctic protocol works quite well up to about a ct of 32 33 so that's that's probably about 100 copies of the virus in, in the sample. So the protocol works well to there, but still works above that. But the genome coverage uh, reduces as you, as you get uh, fewer copies of the genome. Any, any tips for anyone at, listening at home to avoid you know, different issues? What, what, what would you do differently if you had to do it again? Yeah, what you don't want to do is wait, say waste a lot of sequencing effort. But you, you also don't want to bias your um, sample collection by only sequencing lower CT samples. So samples that have a CT below 32, you could put off an art, you could put an artificial cutoff there and say, okay, I will only sequence samples below CT 32. But then you might miss some biology in the fact that you would only collect samples from patients who had a relatively high back or viral load. And these might be asymptomatic patients, for example. So you may, and, and imagine there was a certain lineage associated with asymptomatic patients. That, that's, that's not the case, to be quite honest with you. But we didn't want to miss any biology, and we don't want to miss any biology in the future by, by putting a cutoff at CT32. So I think what I, might, what I might recommend for labs doing this, not to waste too much money on sequencing samples that will fail quality control thresholds, I would say you might want to say after the Arctic PCR is performed that you would look at the uh, concentration of nucleic acid by qubit and determine 
what it was. And if it was, say, below two nanograms per microliter, uh, then you might decide you wouldn't want to run that sample in your sequencing uh, protocol just because it's quite likely to fail at that stage. And I know that uh, we've been using Illumina over Nanopore. And so why that decision to use uh, the Illumina platform? It's really because uh, throughput. Nanopore is, is flexible in terms of throughput. Um, if you can kind of handle, if you're only looking at samples up to about 23, 24 samples per run. We were dealing with far higher numbers than that during the course of the peak of the outbreak in April and May. So we needed to sequence hundreds of samples uh, per week. And the choice, it was <clears throat> easy really because uh, Lumina sequencing is able to, once you get up to hundreds of samples, it's quite flexible in terms of how many you can add and it gives it, the cost is appropriate and probably the right choice of technology if you're dealing with hundreds of samples. You can see you'd have to do several uh, nanopore runs to, to reach those kind of numbers using the uh, network Arctic protocol, uh, uh, nanopore protocol. So at this point, we've generated some sequence data. So I want to bring Andrew in a bit and talk about uh, some of the bioinformatics involved. So Andrew, could you just take us to the basic bioinformatics workflow when after for uh, COVID-19? Yeah, sure. So when the sequences come off the sequencers, you know, you could have, I think the highest we had was three, eight, four in a single uh, run. Then it's all hands on deck. And we, we actually have a Discord server running in the background where we all communicate all the time. So it's all hands on deck. When the sequences come off, they get processed through a pipeline. So if, if it's nanopore data, then it has to get base called a guppy. If it's Illumina data, it goes through your standard uh, BCL to pass Q. And then we start doing some interesting work. So for Illumina, we use primarily IVAR. And that, first of all, has to trim off the adapters. So there's synthetic sequence for the Arctic protocol to enable the tiling PCR. And you have to mask that out. Otherwise, you're going to see variants which may not really exist. It may just be in the, the actual synthetic sequence, not actually in the genome you're sequencing itself. So we mask those out with IVAR, and then you build a consensus sequence. Now, we're just using an XFlow pipeline developed by Tom Connor's lab and we've uh, tweaked it slightly. This pipeline just more or less does these steps for us. So we get a consensus sequence at the other end. We get a BAM file with the reads mapped back to consensus, and then we do some QC on these. So we, we want to see how much a genome have we captured, are there places dropping out. In a few cases early on, we had problems with an early set of primers, we had problems where uh, three specific regions would always drop out, but that's improved now that we got primers from a different company. I think uh, there's been a, a little bit of a uh, fiddling with temperatures and stuff. We're, we're doing all right. We never really get the ends of the genome, unfortunately. Just that's how it is. We like to see a, a reasonable coverage, but with amplicon sequencing, you get huge differences in coverage throughout the genome. It's just what you got to deal with. And as long as your algorithms can work with that, then you're fine. A big mistake people make is they just blindly take amplicon data and then and go and assemble it or something or call variants directly from it without actually considering that this needs to be treated in a separate manner. Right, so then we have a consensus genome. It goes to Nabil for data submission to COG. 
Yeah, so uh, my major role in all of this is to take that data, have a look, have a poke at the QC for it. And then if we decide that the run is good, we submit that up to the general COG UK consortium. So they have a nice server where you send all your files and uh, a system for uploading metadata that we've also collected from the biorepository and from the hospitals. And uh, that then trickles down into Jazade which is the central database that is storing all of the coronavirus sequencing across the world. And eventually it should be going into uh, the standard uh, repositories for sequencing data like ENA and SRA and so on. And uh, just to note that uh, only about 20% of genomes that get submitted to GISAID actually end up in the ENA or in, uh, in GenBank or sorry, the SRA, which is a, yeah. bit, a bit of a problem. Because if you don't have the raw underlying reads, then there's certain types of analysis you can't really do. You can't go back and reanalyze data. You just have to take the consensus sequences or uh, assemblies people have deposited in, uh, in GISAID as that's how it is, you know? You can't double check anything. For, for me, I, that struck me a little bit odd. I kind of just went with it that uh, GISAID only does uh, keep track of the consensus sequence. And they, they do have their own internal QC where they go back and look if there's any um, any abnormalities with the consensus sequence, like random frame shifts that they hadn't seen before and things like that to make sure that the data is valid. But the fact that the raw underlying reads are not available for the community to go back to and just double check everything's fine seems a bit strange. I have been wrangling with submitting our data directly to ENA and uh, it's, it's as always, it's, it's you know, it takes time. <laughs> it takes time. How, how, what's the cutoff that uh, GizAge puts on uh, submission of sequence in terms of genome uh, coverage? So their hard cutoff is 90%. They want to see 90% of the genome recovered com as compared back to the reference. And within COG, they're happy to entertain things uh, a little bit lower than that. So they take 50%. Yeah. But even then, we submit everything because for these high CT samples, you'll get pretty poor genomes, but some people I'm sure will want to do some analysis on that and they'll be able to pull out something from somewhere. Yep, so we religiously put up all of the data that we get hold of along with all of the CT values as well. We try to put up as much as possible uh, so people can go back and do that QC. It's It would be very difficult to figure that out if you only ever saw the good 90% consensus samples. I mean, it's a different question really when, when with that of data you're not using it for in for epi tracing at that point so i guess it's worth mentioning that <clears throat> it's not that straightforward sometimes in the bill in terms of duplicate samples uh, samples that have been poorly labeled um, and and it can be difficult with the with the um, metadata to get it right before submission so we always double check our, our data that's true with any any project of this scale this definitely as you both have mentioned coming out so quickly is means coming up with systems and new protocols and new avenues of sharing information very fast and we've had to reinvent and solve a lot of these sort of problems of how we represent our data and make and check if the metadata is valid and so on it does seem to be vital more than what we would normally do to get this right. And uh, we, yeah, I think everybody's very much involved with trying to get this as good as we can. Yeah, I think uh, working um, in genomics, uh, sometimes 
it depends on your area, but you know, um, often microbial genomics, there wouldn't be a great need for you to be reaching kind of clinical standards of reporting. And, and uh, we work on um, clinical metagenomics and therefore have some experience in this area. But yes, certainly compared to uh, sequencing foodborne pathogen genomes, etc., cetera, um, sequencing uh, the coronavirus from patient samples and making sure that you uh, report the data accurately and don't make any mistakes in terms of uh, patient uh, metadata is extremely important and it's it's another it's it's another step up in in how you have to uh, work with your data. It's quite interesting that uh, quite a lot of people who traditionally worked in bacteria moved immediately into to working on viruses because viruses is a teeny tiny little area and very very specialized so it is quite good that so many people were able to transition so rapidly over yeah traditionally like i i i only have done very very little uh, virology in my career so uh, this would be the biggest project i've ever done and um and i i don't maintain to be a virologist in any way but it's uh, the skills that i have in 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 terms of microbiological sequencing uh, were, were transferable from bacteriology to, to virology without too much difficulty, but, but uh, I'm, I'm still not a virologist. None of us are. Well, we should mention that there are virologists and specialists on within the consortium who handled that particular component. Uh, it really is playing to everyone's strengths. Yeah, well, we have, we have a team of uh, virologists in, in the clinical virology lab who, who support us in our understanding of the data. Uh, but the, in terms of the, um, the sequencing procedures and analysis procedures are not significantly different for a virus as they would be for a bacterium. So anyway, what next? You know, we're at the end of wave one. How are we gonna do things differently for wave two? Yeah, that's, that's um, something that's evolving all the time, I think. So, so what we've been really trying to make sure that is, is that we don't go and sequence 1500 genomes and not do anything with the data. Um, there was an, uh, some really interesting work done by Oliver Pybus uh, and Andrew Rambo, uh, which was published recently in which Nick Lohman was on BBC Radio 4 uh, today show discussing. Um, and um, this is how many introductions of the virus were made into the UK and they reckon it was around 1,350 separate introductions. And that's supposed to be a, probably an underestimate. So that, that's a very interesting application of the, uh, of the uh, data that we're producing. But we, we need to now move from a kind of an overall understanding of what happened and how the virus moved into the country to, to using this data to help um, in the outbreak control programs that will run all the way across the country at various different public health agencies and um, local county councils. So I think um, that, that that's the next stage for us is to start working with local county councils and PHE to use the data for if we expect and as we expect the second peak to arrive that we would use the data in as real time as possible to help inform on public health interventions. So this would be the canary in a coal mine that will warn us if something is gone amiss or if things are calming down. Well, I think it's it's its strength is probably to what how you can demonstrate that whether 
a transmission in a certain setting is likely or whether it's not likely. So, for example, if you had a school setting or a, a care home or a factory uh, where there have been multiple cases of coronavirus, this is the way you can genotype them and figure out if you have a transmission from person to person within that institution or it is separate introductions of that um, virus into that institution and, and, and they would require different public health interventions. So I think that is, it, it's going beyond just a positive result to, to giving some much deeper information on where the virus um, has come from or how it's spreading. So that's all the time we have for this episode. I'm Nabil, I was your host for today, and I was joined with Andrew Page and Justin O'Grady. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much. We've been talking about uh, coronavirus and the efforts within the Quadrum Institute as part of COG UK in in combating and sequencing that. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time on the Microbinfi podcast. Mm